Well, yeah, I mean, if you start at the sort of younger age, we've now got one in six are effectively fitting a diagnosis of neurodivergent, um, more with ADHD, autism and so on. You've got about one in six who have special educational needs. I and mean, this, this is a big number. I learned about farmed salmon and farmed prawns, and they're one of the most toxic foods on the planet you know they're they're sprayed have lice over them that are sprayed on a daily basis they're injected with hormones they it's cruel you know they they swim around in a kind of circle funny enough there's no food out there in nature that has high fat and high sugar with the exception the exception of, of breast milk and i was quite interested um, I have a theory also that it's like the milk chocolate bar, high in sugar, high in fat. But actually, the milk's got something to do with it, because you're quite right in saying that breast milk is quite unique. I mean, human breast milk, that is, in that it is exceptionally high in fat, um, as well as sugar. And of course, the nature of milk, uh, well, part of it, it has these opioids um, called casomorphines. Um, so the baby becomes addicted to the breast. Welcome to The Wellness Way with me, Philly J. Lay, a layperson's guide to your natural health systems, your very own NHS. Hello, lovely people, and welcome to another episode of The Wellness Way. And I have a man here today who I have been in awe of for many years, actually, from when I first bought his, his low GL diet book. A man who has gone way beyond the realms of many other um, doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists in his realm to get to the root cause of illness. And I'm going to introduce you to Patrick Holford. Patrick, hello, and thank you so much for being on The Wellness Way today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Right. There is so much that I want to talk to you about. You have been a mine of information for over 40 years in the industry. You have over 45 published books in 30 different languages, numerous papers published, uh, but I'd like you to tell our audience to start with how you started. And I know you started in a health food shop just down the road from me in High Wycombe actually, and then you started psychology. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Uh, well, yeah, and I'll tell you some things that most people don't know and is not necessarily in the books. Uh, but as a teenager, I had some very interesting, what I guess you would call mystical experiences. And uh, one of them, and, and as a consequence of that, I mean, I was a bit crazy because I was reading Jung, Carl Jung and Hermann Hesse. I even had pictures of them in my wallet. And here's a funny thing. I decided, like many people, this is back in the you know early 70s, um, to go to India, you know, to sort of find a master, so to speak. And I went to the doctor to get the um, the injection, you know, the, the vaccine for hepatitis, gamma globulin, had the vaccine, went home, sitting in my bedroom, and suddenly I had a, an incredible out-of-body experience uh, where I was in infinity and eternity and everything was light and everything was waves of light. It was really, you know, timeless and eternal. And then suddenly, wow. wham! I'm back in the bedroom. So when people say, am I anti-vax? I say, no, no, I had an amazing experience. But anyway, as a consequence of all these strange things, I went to study psychology. And York University had the first ever experimental psychology degree, which was trying to be a BSC, a science, not an art. 
And uh, there I was thrust into the world of neurotransmitters in the brain and so on. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. Why don't you come and sign up to my newsletter at phillyjlay.com where we can keep connected and we can talk about lots of things going on in the world. You will also get my free manifestation meditation so you can become a shit hot manifester too. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share and turn your notifications on so you never miss an episode. Thank you. Uh, thinking that my path lay really in sort of psychotherapy and psychological you know, type approaches. And uh, we were studying schizophrenia, which is a terrible disease. And uh, what happened was I came across what I'd been taught to look for, which was a proper randomized placebo-controlled trial. And it turned out, I didn't know it at the time, to be the first ever done in the field of psychiatry, which had given a very, very high dose of a B vitamin, niacin B3, versus placebo. It was, it was run by one of the directors of psychiatric research in Canada. And they got better. And it was amazing. I mean, so much better than any drug. And not that this, you know, a few years later, I jumped on a plane and went to visit Dr. Abram Hoffer and uh, said, how many people have you treated with schizophrenia with this mega vitamin approach? And he said about 3000. And I said, what's your success rate? And he said, 85% cure. Wow. I, I nearly fell off my chair because I'd never wow. seen a cured schizophrenic. And I said, you know, you've got to define what you mean by cure. And he said, free of symptoms, able to socialize with family and friends and paying income tax. Now that, <laughs> now that I'd never seen that. So I then asked him if I could meet some of these formerly diagnosed schizophrenics, which I did. And then my final question to him was, can I be your student? Uh, he then introduced me to Dr. Linus Pauling. Uh, Dr. Linus Pauling is the only man ever to have won two unshared Nobel Prizes. He had 48 PhDs, total genius. Um, he worked with Einstein. When Einstein was asked, are you a genius? He said, if you want a real genius, it's Linus Pauling. And it was Linus Pauling who got onto vitamin C, uh, which has become a little bit of an obsession of mine. So by 1984, I decided we needed an institute to study optimum nutrition. And Linus Pauling was my patron. And we started a new profession called nutritional therapy, which is now degree accredited which I ran until 98, and then I, I left it in the capable hands of others, sat down, wrote books. I think I've just finished my 47th, and um, also started the charity Food for the Brain Foundation because my passion is about how to optimize our mental health. Um, and uh, at the moment, I'm spending a lot of my time really um, teaching uh, that Alzheimer's is a, is, a, is a preventable disease. You don't need to get it. And perhaps just to end that little intro, Abram Hoffer, who died in his 90s, um, two weeks before his death, he stopped seeing patients. Two days before his death, he checked into the local hospital. He didn't have any disease as such, but his organs started to shut down. He died at peace with no drugs, no pain in his mid-90s. Linus Pauling, he got a bit of prostate cancer in his sort of mid-90s. And uh, I filmed him a few months before his death when he was working on an astonishing theory, which we now know is true about lipoprotein A and heart disease. So what I'm really saying is that there is absolutely no need to lose any part of your intelligence um, at any point in life. So we're sort of moving into an era where it's expected, you know, that you're going to get cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's, which less than 1% for about half a percent is in the genes.
Well, I introduced Dr. Bruce Lipton on the genes um, and, you know, his book, Biology of Belief. And, you know, less than 1% of illness is actually accredited to our genes, which I think is really important to know because, you know, I, I kind of very much grew up. My father had Parkinson's thinking, oh, is it genetic? Am I going to get Parkinson's disease? And now I know that, that there's no reason for me to get it whatsoever. And I was saying to somebody, and I've said it before on this podcast, I knew so many old ladies when I was little, you know, my my granny and friends of my granny's all in their 80s and 90s, sharp as buttons. None of them had any memory loss. And we have seen this accumulation of Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, ADHD, all these mental health problems that have have gone out of control in, in my lifetime, in not a very long period of time, really. Um, can you give us any figures on this and, and what your reasoning is behind it? Well, yeah, I mean, if you start at the sort of younger age, we've now got one in six are effectively fitting a diagnosis of neurodivergent, um, more with ADHD, autism and so on. You've got about one in six who have special educational needs. And this, this is a big number. Uh, schizophrenia, as you say, has gone up. Depression has gone up massively. Uh, I mean, one measure of depression is the amount of antidepressants prescribed, which last year was over 100 million, you know, to an adult population in the UK of less than half of that. So what we're seeing is in some poorer areas, 50% of women are on antidepressants. Uh, overall, about one in six are on antidepressants. Alzheimer's um, again, I mean, globally, it's one person every three seconds is diagnosed. In the UK, it's uh, seven de double-decker buses worth every day, 790 uh, people who are diagnosed. And I mean, to, to put it into context, because I mean, our healthcare systems are, are breaking down and they're breaking down because they don't um, they don't they don't take the P word seriously, which is prevention. I remember when all the doctors and nurses and paramedics were going on strike for you know very good reasons. They needed more money and so on. I wrote, there's there's not more of anything that will save our health service. There's not going to be more money, more doctors, more drugs, more nurses, more you know, the only thing that will save our health service is less disease. And, and that means prevention. So I was just looking in China where they're facing a cerebral tsunami. I mean, they got 260 million people over 65 and they have calculated that the cost of dementia, if they don't actually do something in terms of a paradigm shift by, I think it's 2050, it's going to be $1.5 trillion, which is which is kind of approaching half our GDP. So our, our entire health system will be completely bust just by this one disease, you know, dementia, let, let alone cancer, which of course is escalating out of control and has crossed the one in three mark and diabetes, which is also very expensive. So we're in this extraordinary situation where the drug companies still rule. I mean, what's been happening in Alzheimer's is, is, is almost you know, sinister, but certainly highly unethical. Um, and we're not waking up to the fact. And uh, we will simply not be able to support this level of disease. Homo sapiens now uh, is, I mean, there are more violent deaths uh, attributed to suicide than there are all wars and murders. Oh, my God. When you say wars and murders, do you mean all wars and murders? Oh, yeah. So in other words, if you just step back, if you were like a sort of Martian and we're looking from outer space, um, this species called Homo sapiens 
uh, is extremely unwell and extremely unhappy. Uh, we have, I mean, you know, we have every year from diet-related diseases, not every year, but we've, we've had more deaths from diet-related diseases, effectively sugar, uh, than we've had from World War I and World War II combined. So, we're, so and the question is why, you know, what's, what's going on? And I think it's a sort of streaming together of a few different things. One is definitely sugar, um, you know, and carbohydrates. No question about that. Um, the other, which is which kind of ties in with it, is um, is tech. And we don't realize that all the social media and you know the digital world in which we live, which obviously has tremendous advantages as well, um, is designed to grab your attention and keep your attention, whether it's the Facebook like or. Instagram or TikTok or this, that, or whatever, but everyone's trying to grab your attention in order to get you into some hyped up state in order to click a button where you'll buy something. And uh, we've learned how to manipulate the reward system of the brain. When I was an undergraduate psychologist studying B.F. Skinner, who'd taken, you know, mice and rats in mazes and found that if you, you, you know, if you, if you got them addicted to something, but and they had to press a button to get it, but they didn't always get it. You know, it's, it's actually the delayed reward. Uh, you could get them really, really hooked. So, in a sense, the marketeers are, try, are trying to sell us things. You know, that's the that's the sort of imperative. And um, sometimes you buy things more and you behave better in states of fear and anxiety and outrage and all the rest of it. So we've got the sort of the psychological tech. Um, we've got sugar, uh, we've got, I mean, uh, and then I think omega-3 is really, really important. And we just don't realize, I mean, less than 5% of children now achieve even the very, very basic level of omega-3. So I think what's actually been happening um, is very, very early programming. People don't realize, uh, I've just been writing a whole lot of work on this, but basically studies on pregnant women and even pre-pregnant, looking at things like their omega-3 status, their B vitamin status and so on, predicts um, children's mental function at age one, two, four, six, eight, and 10. So in other words, we've got kids now who are being born as a consequence of mothers who are not getting enough omega-3, eating too much sugar, you know, and all the rest of it and what we've learned on the gene side is very interesting because genes you know you can't change the genes you're born with but you can change their switching on or off and that switching is actually passed on from generation to generation so if you've got diabetic parents the child is born um, with switches that will make them more prone to diabetes so i mean looked at from a perspective it was always the rich people who were fat and the poor people who were thin and uh, right now, it's the poor people who are fat and the rich people who are thinner, you know, on the whole, because they're a bit better educated and better nourished and so on. So I think it's better educated and better nourished. I think it's also the fact that they can afford to buy better food. And this is one of the problems with the society that we live in, that the poor people, um, you know, the people that don't have as much money are targeted by um, the big um, marketing companies to buy this complete and utter shit um, to and you have a great book out <laughs> with that in the title you know but they are targeted and it is completely addictive 
Uh, and you spoke then about the research on um, mice and rats that's been done. Uh, and there was, and I can't remember the name of the scientist that did it, but there was a, a mice trial where they were just given so much stuff and they were bombarded. And they actually started, you know, at first they were really happy and they were breeding and breeding and breeding. And then they started turning on themselves and becoming cannibals. And, um, you know, they just kind of went completely out of control. Uh, and then stopped breeding. Uh, and then the colony died out after, I think it was about 35 years. Do, do you know about that that trial? Have I well, just messed that up? I don't know <laughs> about that, but a very sort of very practical one, which will sort of help us not go towards cannibalism, but um, was the trial of Professor Paul Kenny, a Dubliner who works at Mount Sinai Hospital in, in New York. And he fed rats um, either nothing but sugar, and they ate too much and became fat, but not as much as you would think because they, they were satisfied after a while, had enough sweet or nothing but fat. Same thing happened. They gained weight, but not as much as you might think. But when he fed them 50% sugar, 50% fat, they could not stop eating. It completely messed up their appetite control. And that was kind of how the junk food industry learned that if you combine fast sugars with fats, you mess up the brain signaling um, to the point where you have to have it. Um, I'm That's a bit... also the ratio, though, is, isn't it? A breast milk, a mother's breast milk? Is a well, funny, yeah, funny enough, there's no food out there in nature that has yeah. high fat and high sugar, with the exception, the exception of, of breast milk. And I was quite interested. Um, I have a theory also that it's like the milk chocolate bar, high in sugar, high in fat. But actually, the milk's got something to do with it, because you're quite right in saying that breast milk is quite unique. I mean, human breast milk, that is, in that it is exceptionally high in fat, um, as well as sugar. And of course, the nature of milk, uh, well, part of it, it has these opioids um, called casomorphemes. Um, so the baby becomes addicted to the breast, you know, which is obviously has a big survival imperative. Now, you know, I'm 65 years old, and I often say to people, I'm I'm still breastfeeding from another species of animal. Do you think I'm weird? I'm talking about consuming milk. Uh, actually, I don't have milk at all. Um, and then I say, can you name me a, a mammal, uh, a, a wild animal that consumes milk as an adult? And the answer is there are none. So humans are the only mammal that continue to drink milk. And I mean, I've been, uh, you know, hung, drawn and quartered so many times in my career. And, you know, one of them was when I said, you know, if you've got breast cancer or prostate cancer, you've got to stop drinking milk. And we know, as I'm sure you know as well, that, that when you have a lot of milk, you produce something called insulin-like growth hormone, IGF-1. It's perfectly normal. It's what milk's meant to do, um, stimulate the growth of cells. But if you happen to have breast cancer cells or prostate cancer cells, it will make them grow. So we have a, we have a situation where we really, um, uh, we're devolving. I mean, we, we've moved away from our evolutionary design. And there's a lovely, well, not lovely, that's the wrong word, a shocking example of this. Human brain size, when Homo sapiens appeared 100,000 years ago, up to 10,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, the average brain size of Homo sapiens was, was just shy of 1.5 kilos, 1.49 kg. It's now 1.35. So in the last 10,000 years, we've actually lost about 10% of our brain volume and according to, to Scandinavian research, our IQ is dropping by about 7% a generation. Gosh. So, so smaller brain, lower IQ, 
more mental health problems. We are currently devolving. And then the really interesting question, if you think about it, is um, do, and I'll give you a nice example of this because many people don't realize, and I'm convinced of this, as is David Attenborough, who's really promotes it a lot, is that we became homo sapiens because when we split from gorillas, bonobos, and chimpanzees six and a half million years ago, we, this is a theory, exploited wetlands, swamplands, rivers, estuaries, the water's edge, because that's that's like the Fuite del Mar. That's the easiest way to get a lot of really good nourishment. And as a consequence, we believe we became upright. Um, we developed the insulating layer of fat that many of us are trying desperately to get rid of. Um, and one of the clinches, and the reason this sort of theory came into existence to some extent, was David Attenborough um, said that human babies are born with a waxy waterproof layer called the vernix, which you wash off. Uh, he said, I've never seen that in any land-based mammal. I wonder if it exists in the marine mammals, who are the last mammals to leave the, you know, leave the, the earth and go to the water, um, like seals and sea lions and so on. And they have an identical vernix to us. So the theory is that we were, you know, we were Homo aquaticus, we were the waterside ape, and we were sort of having a lot of our diet from marine foods, not just marine foods. And that gave the level of omega-3 DHA that allowed our brains to develop. So, you know, we can explore that in a little bit, bit more detail, but here I am down in Wales where I live. And a few years ago, they discovered the oldest Homo sapiens on the Gower Peninsula, uh, which they called the Paviland a woman, uh, because the skeleton um, had uh, lovely jewelry of shells, necklaces, and bracelets, and so on. And it turned out it was actually a man. And, uh, you know, the assumption, as is always said, is they would have been wandering across the plains with spears eating antelope. But when they analyzed the bones, 20% uh, of the diet was marine food. So we're talking about mussels and crabs and fish and all that sort of thing. So if you assume because, you know, they didn't have cars, they didn't have a cardo, they, you know, they didn't have fridges, uh, that they must have been expending at least two, if not three times as many calories as we were hunting and fishing, yeah. you know, catching wood and for fire and all the rest of it. So, you know, if it were two times um, the calories, we would have to eat 40% of our entire diet as marine food to be getting the level of omega-3 and B12, which is very important, and iodine and selenium and uh, choline, which is a phospholipid. So the point about this is that if you ask the question, is Homo sapiens brain in 2023 having to work harder or less hard than Homo sapiens, you know, 400 years ago? And I think you say, well, probably more hard. I mean, every day we've got a new bit of tech, a new app, a new this, a new that, you know. It blows my mind. I have to say I'm on a new camera today for the podcast and it's it's all a bit of a mind fuck for me. It's just like, oh. I mean, there isn't, there isn't a week where we don't have to be, you know, upgrading and learning things. So brains are probably working harder. So they've got to need at least as much nutrients as we used to get. Um, but even if you, you know, shop in Waitrose or whatever, you're still getting a fraction of what our ancestors got for that entire period, which led to... Homo sapiens. And if our brain is shrinking, which it is, then what's changed? And, and the answer fundamentally is our, our diet has changed. And that's why, you know, things like supplements. I mean, funnily enough, in 2007, I got reported to the Advertising Standard Agency. I got a black mark because I said 
I said, you cannot get all the vitamins you need from a well-balanced diet. You have to supplement vitamin D in the winter from October to March. And I got done because there's a rule, which is you cannot imply that you can't get all the nutrients you need from a well-balanced diet. So I got a black mark. And then in 2017, you know, 10 years later, or 2016, I think, um, the government announced everyone must supplement vitamin D in the winter. I felt like reporting them to the Advertising Standards Authority. And the thing is that you don't get it from food, you get it from sunlight. And we live in the UK um, and we don't have a lot of sunlight in the UK. So it is something that you do need to supplement. But, you know, and, th and this, what everything you're saying just makes such perfect sense to me. You know, I was watching a lecture by the amazing Barbara O'Neill recently, where she was talking about taking uh, Celtic sea salt before every sip of water. And mm -hmm. Celtic sea salt has got the same amount of minerals in it as our bone structure, mm -hmm. which, you know, when you talk about the fact that we've, you know, come out of the sea, that we wrinkle up, you know, that we have this film on us. And um, it, it makes perfect sense that then our bones have, have come from water. And the, also the other fact that when you come out of your mother's womb, you've just spent nine months in water. So you are used to being in water you know and and I did this with my children when they were born uh, I wanted them to swim and so within the first couple of weeks I literally threw them into a swimming pool because somebody said to me they can breathe and they will just kick their way to the top and they'll become little fishes but if you leave it after the six weeks they've got used to um you know breathing in the air and they can't do it so I thought oh fuck I'll give it a go it was terrifying absolutely terrifying but I did it so this is all making a, a huge amount of sense to me and I hope it is to our audience and but I want to talk to you because something that concerns me and I used to eat fish and then I watch Seaspiracy, the movie Seaspiracy, uh, which I'm sure you've seen. Uh, and also I'm hugely concerned about the sheer amount of pollution in our seas, you know, not just the plastics, but the sludge that's coming off from factory farming, you know, um, the mercury, you know, I'm, I've known for a long time not to eat tuna because, you know, the larger fishes hold more mercury. So how would you answer that, Patrick? Well, it is a real quandary and there's nothing more imperative than protecting our oceans, um, you know, and the whole ecosystem in the oceans was devastated by the slaughter of 99% of whales. You know, that's kind of where things started going massively downhill. Um, but what we do, and, uh, you know, the charity I, I work for, Food for the Brain Foundation, we have an incredible team of scientists, some of the world's leading experts in omega-3, for example. And when we look at the level of omega-3, that you need for minimal risk of dementia, <clears throat> best mood and so on, it's extraordinarily high. So, I mean, to put it into context, if you take a fish oil capsule, you know, let's call that a gram. I was just talking to um, Joe Hiblin. He uh, uh, was captain in the Navy, in charge of the Navy's health. He's a psychiatrist. And he was telling me that some of his uh, depressed patients, when they have four grams, four capsules, um, report such a level of contentment, uh, more desire for sex, better orgasms, and really they feel fantastic. And I was talking to the man who discovered omega-3 in the context of the, the whole theory of Homo aquaticus, which was Professor Michael Crawford. He's now in his 90s, sharp as a razor, fascinating fellow, 
And by the way, he was a zoologist and he analyzed the types of fats in the organs of different animals around the world. And it depends on their diet, except for the brain. There is no brain of any animal, no brain in eye, because the eye is the extension of the brain of any animal that isn't phenomenally high in omega-3 DHA. And DHA is um, it's got docosahexanoic acid, six double bonds in a horseshoe shape. And he proved in effect, that the first organism some more than a billion years ago, um, probably a little thing called the dinoflagellate in the oceans, absorbed this fat, this lipid, which could convert solar energy into the first twitch towards food. In other words, the origin of the brain is in the ocean as a function of omega-3 DHA. And um, the other day, funny enough, I was having um, um, a dream about him. And I was visiting him in his lovely home near near in Regent's Park and lying on his chaise long, having a little catch up. Anyway, I contacted him and said, what's up? And he said, I've worked it out. I mean, here's a man in his 90s. He's got a book that will be out any day now called The Shrinking Brain. And he said, I've worked out. No one has ever explained how what we see, you know, the photons that hit our eye turn into this precise image so rapidly, you know, that we see and say, ah, it's Philly, it's blue, it's this, it's that. And um, he's worked it out. It's to do with DHA in the eye. And I mean- Can you tell us? I'm so excited. Can you tell us? I know his book isn't out and maybe that's- kind of nuclear physics, but I'll try and explain a little bit. Um, Because you may at some point have seen, you know, atoms have these electrons whizzing around the outside in different sort of orbits. And basically, if all this energy from, from- photons you know from light hit our eye our eyes would boil they're full of fat they would they would boil so when that energy hits it's got a bounce you know these electrons out into outer layers and it changes the shape he says from a horseshoe to chairs he says it changes it to chairs and sets up a chain reaction up our neural network so basically what you're perceiving of as me is you know a million or so chairs in particular orientation which your brain then says that's Patrick, and it's it's a very precise transmission, and it's totally based on DHA omega three. So what we find, and this was really where it goes all the way back to uh, Dr. Abram Hoffer as well, is that when people have mental health problems, they're often having disperceptions. They're not actually perceiving things in the way they should. And it's not just about omega-3, but when you think of people with eating disorders, they think they're bigger than they actually are. When you have people with schizophrenia, you know, they hear things, they see things, things are fuzzy. So it's all disperceptions. So we're very, very interested in the process by which we perceive. um, And we're learning that DHA is important. So coming back to your question about fish, uh, on the one hand, yes, the oceans are in a terrible way. On the other hand, can I get anything like, you know, the the optimal intake and the amount that our ancestors would have got if I don't eat fish? And the answer is sort of no. So my my take on seaspiracy was on the one hand, you know, good for exposing what's going on. On the other hand, if everyone does what you say, you know, in seaspiracy, which is everyone stops eating fish until the thing's sorted out. I mean, our intelligence is going to go down even more. And the one thing we need is intelligence. And um, so my take on it was actually the the issue is this overcatch, you know, trawling, that it's basically an engineering issue, which has got to be solvable. I mean, it's 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 I think it's a solvable problem. 
And I, and by the way, when you have fish oils, you can purify them completely for PCBs of, you know, mercury and all the rest of it. And just to say something about mercury, because I happened to, uh, years ago, I went to a Carlos Island off Kenya and built a house on it, um, where we have yellowfin tuna, which is smaller. And it turned out the mercury in yellowfin tuna, which was much less than the mercury in the big bluefin. And I, I researched it. And most of the mercury actually comes from fissures in the ocean floor. In other words, volcanoes, undersea volcanoes. And, and, and effectively, you're quite right. The bigger the fish, the more it accumulates. But it's not just purely a function of, you know, pollution as such. And also bigger fish have more selenium. Selenium and mercury combine. So, um, you know, they, they render each other inactive to some extent. So I've sort of come to, I actually think it's good to eat fish, but obviously we desperately need to clean up the oceans. Um, I'm very concerned about plastics and fish as you are. Uh, mackerel, I, I prefer to have a wild fish and a mackerel is very good in that sense. So is a sardine. I make a mean sardine pate and a kedgeri with smoked mackerel. And it turns out the flesh of mackerel doesn't really have plastics in it. You know, it's more in the organs as such. But I totally understand someone who, you know, and, and here's the predicament as well, because if you have three servings of fish a week, which is what I would recommend, and even that is not getting you to, I, I have both that and I supplement omega-3. That much. So it's three portions of fish a week and you supplement. And can you supplement with something like chia seed? Would that cut the mustard? No, I love seed chia seed. No, because the, no, you can't. And I mean, the point is that chia is rich in the original omega-3, it's called alpha-linolenic acid, and flax is too, and walnuts are too, and they're all good foods, and I, I eat them all the time, and chia is a brilliant soluble fiber, so they're really, really good. But less than 5% converts to EPA, and EPA, you then have to make DHA. So, you know, maybe one or 2% of that vegetable omega-3 is getting you know to actually produce dha so good foods but dot 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 they won't do it now there are big companies like cargill who've learned how to make or concentrate dha from algae um, you know from seaweed or algae um, so you get vegan dha supplements which uh, are getting better because they tend to be quite low in dose and and i mean the way that uh, michael crawford puts it really is i mean he's literally worried that we are going to make ourselves extinct because the very thing that makes us human is our intelligence our empathy um you know our connection and that's what's going and he says, I mean, his view is as population increases. And by the way, I think the reason our brain size shrank is we became land-based. So we moved away from marine-based diet into land-based diet. So omega-3 went down. You can actually predict the rate of murder in a country from its omega-3 intake. You know, wow. it, it's, it, you know so if you're in a land-based country, you have a lot more murders. If you're in a sea-based you know, sea country, you have much, much less. Same with mood. You can predict mood to, in relation to fish consumption. So his view is that you know, many, many years ago, 10,000 years ago, we became um, agricultural. We moved away from hunter-gatherers on the land to peasant farmers on the land. And we're still hunter-gatherers in the ocean. You know, We go out there and we just catch the fish. He says, for humanity to survive, 
we have to become marine agriculturalists. I'm going to ask you about that because, you know, again, something that disturbs me hugely is, is farmed fish. You know, I, I grew up being told by my mum my that salmon was really, really good for you and, you know, seafood like prawns. And then as I got older and I started my healing journey and I was looking into this and I learned about farmed salmon and farmed prawns, and they're one of the most toxic foods on the planet you know they're they're sprayed have lice over them that are sprayed on a daily basis they're injected with hormones they, it's cruel you know they they swim around in a kind of circle um so so explain what you mean about uh, marine agriculture so for example uh michael crawford just got an award in japan um the, i think the order of the rising sun is called because he's been advising them how to repopulate their estuaries um, with natural fish. And what they've been doing is they've been putting in um, um, artificial reef structures, which have encouraged back the crabs and the mussels and the snappers and all that sort of stuff. And um, they're also growing uh, thousands of acres of seaweed and planting sea grasses. Um, so we're talking about regenerating. Right. The, the water's edge, uh, not a sort of a, a linear thing where you, I mean, I, I actually just came back from the Mediterranean. I was talking to a fisherman there who'd caught a, a rather nice looking swordfish and we got chatting. Um, and um, he, he explained how uh, in the Mediterranean, they'd been capturing um, the tuna uh, in giant cages and trawling them to Spain, where it was cheaper to process them. And on the way, the tuna were giving birth. And, and as a consequence, and, and by the way, what happened uh, in order to sell them to Japan, because you know these tuna can sell for a lot of money, uh, is the tuna had become less healthy and the quality of the meat was not so great. So the Japanese didn't even want to buy it. But in the process of this stupidity, um, the you know the, the the tuna were very disoriented and they're sort of losing their natural um, you know migratory paths because they're being born in the wrong place and so on. So it's yeah, I mean marine agriculture has to be an intelligent thing, and it's a little bit like you know where I live in Wales now. I'm quite delighted because we don't buy any fruit and veg anymore from the shop. It's pouring out of our garden uh, where we're doing zero dig, so we don't even turn the soil anymore once we've planted things so we want yeah. to get the fungal yeah. work really growing so you have to kind of go back to the sea grasses and the seaweeds and the reef structures uh you know to attract the natural marine life and of course you know we've got to deal with plastics and we've got to deal with you know with effluent you know going into the oceans and that kind of thing so i'm kind of with you on farmed um you know fish uh, which could be healthier, you know, depending on what they're fed. So if you've got a lock, you know, with salmon in it and you happen to feed them well, it may not be quite so bad. But if you've got, I mean, I do really worry about, you know, where prawns actually come from and all the rest of it. So it's a terrible quandary because we're learning on the one hand the science, we need a lot more. On the other hand, if, if lucky people, you know, like me, if everyone was having three servings of fish, we'd have none left. You know, yeah. so there is a lack of supply. Um, we're messing up the oceans. Uh, so, yes, and marine agriculture done properly, uh, you know, becomes, you know, terribly important. But, I mean, to contextualise this in another way, 
Um, what Professor Michael Crawford's been doing at the Institute of Brain Chemistry, which is part of the Chelsea and Westminster campus of Imperial College, is that they have learned that if you take a woman at pregnancy, um, if they don't have enough omega-3, and many don't, their, their body will produce a type of oleic acid. So this olive oil is oleic acid. And when they measure the level of this oleic acid um, in the red blood cells, uh, they can tell you which woman's going to have a baby with mental health problems or brain defects. In other words, the, the mother's body will produce a packer, a filler for their infant's brain when it doesn't have enough omega-3 present. So we are literally, we are, we are giving birth to babies who are pre-programmed um, for mental health problems. And then we're wondering why one in six are neurodivergent. Um, some of it is starting in the womb. Gosh, I, I find that quite shocking, actually, because you're not told that when you're pregnant. You know, they, they don't really give you any nutritional advice whatsoever. My doctor certainly gave me none. But I want to go back and, and ask you now about, you were talking earlier about the research you did on schizophrenia, uh, but you also did some research with schools, didn't you? Um, and I'd like to talk about a bit about that because that you, you brought up amazing evidence that you took, um, you were talking about one in six children with, you know, issues, learning issues, and you had some extraordinary results in the trials that you did um, through vitamins and kind of laughed out weren't you when you wanted to do it well yeah I mean this goes back to the very early 1980s we just started the Institute for Optimum Nutrition and one of my students was a headmaster of a secondary school called Gwilym Roberts and uh, uh, everyone had to do a project and he said I'd like to do mine on sort of intelligence and the effects of nutrition in kids and we basically invented a multivitamin that was high. We didn't really know about omega-3s then. That was high in all the nutrients that we knew about. And uh, did a little trial where we gave kids either that or placebo and, and got measurable improvement. So we then thought this could be a really decent study and um, hired a professor of psychology uh, David Benton at University of uh, Swansea, who thought we were nuts. There's absolutely no way that giving a multivitamin is going to increase IQs. We thought, you're the right guy. You know, you're going to be a complete skeptic on this. So he ran the study with Willem Roberts. And um, uh, we had, uh, you know, the kids were either on the vitamin or placebo, and some were just to control and nothing. And we had it filmed by the BBC Horizon team. Yeah, Horizon uh, did it, didn't they, in the 80s? They did. And uh, we got a 10 point increase, which is massive in IQ in the kids on the vitamins, a three point increase on the placebo. So the difference was seven points and five point difference will get half of all kids classified as special educational needs back to normal. So it was a very big effect. And um, I remember it because it, it was sort of quite interesting the way these things work because, you know, when, when we sort of went to the press and it hit the front page of every newspaper and every TV channel. Because until then, people didn't really have any concept that your intelligence could be affected by what you eat. So it was a you know big jump. And we got trashed by the medics and the dietitians. But then two days later, it came out in the Lancet Medical Journal. And the study has never been criticized. There's nothing wrong with it in any respect. Um, and then, and this is sort of 
gives you the context of things as well. I remember a child psychiatrist saying it's a useless study because you don't know what did it. Was it the B1 or the B6 or the folate or the zinc or the this or the that? Um, and since then, there have been studies on each individual nutrient, and in effect, none of them have worked. There's a couple of B vitamins that had a little bit of effect in isolation, uh, but the combo was extremely effective. And what I think actually happened, um, sort of, sort of by chance, um, is that we had picked, we included nutrients that help a process in the brain called methylation, and methylation is vital and if you're not doing methylation properly the level of homocysteine in your blood goes up and homocysteine now predicts a hundred diseases but it's an incredibly strong predictor of alzheimer's um, and i think it was the combination of methylation b vitamins by the way in a swedish study the level of homocysteine in school kids predicts their school grades you know it, it, the level of homocysteine predicts birth defects and pregnancy problems. So uh, above 11, you're getting accelerated brain shrinkage. I say to women who wish to get pregnant, don't even try unless you have a homocysteine below seven. How would you how would you find that out? What do you do? It's a blood test, but it's extraordinarily hard to get it done. And I actually... I was going to say, my GP, I mean, I've only got half a thyroid where I had a tumour out. And I keep asking to have it tested. And there's one thing he'll test for. And, you know, where can the public go so that they can test all of this stuff and see what's going on in their bodies? Well, the charity that I run, Food for the Brain Foundation, foodforthebrain.org, um, that's exactly what we're working on right now. We want to hit January with a cheap uh, home test kit, which will measure not only homocysteine, but also omega-3 and vitamin D, and the best sugar measure, which is called HbA1c. And it's, I mean, there's there's 29,000 studies on homocysteine. Doctors can get it measured. It's not a difficult test. So in other words, any hospital laboratory can measure homocysteine. It, it, it should be as easy as cholesterol, but the biggest problem um, is there's no drug at the end of it. So, I mean, let me sort of give you the context for this. So what Professor David Smith, who was second in charge at Oxford Medical School, uh, did, it was his team who found out that Alzheimer's was to do with the shrinkage of the central part of the brain, the medial temporal lobe, uh, many years ago. And they, 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 their research led to the development of a scan of that area of the brain. If you're losing your mind, uh, which you can measure on a cognitive function test. That's what they do in memory clinics. And first level is called mild cognitive impairment. Second level is called dementia. Now, two thirds of dementia is Alzheimer's, but you can only diagnose Alzheimer's by doing this scan of the medial temporal part of the brain, um, which Oxford University's researchers pioneered. They then found very high levels of homocysteine in people with Alzheimer's. So in 2010, David Smith did a perfect study as good as you know these drug studies that we've been seeing hitting the newspapers, where they took people with pre-dementia and gave them uh, measured their homocysteine, showed that the higher the homocysteine, the greater was the rate of brain shrinkage because this disease is a disease of brain shrinkage. Um, then gave half of the group the B vitamins that lower homocysteine and the other half placebo. 
originally um, got 52% less brain shrinkage on the B vitamins. And then they realized that brain cells um, require omega-3 to be made. Uh, I'd like to talk about that. Um, and then went back to their original blood samples, split the group into the third with the lowest omega-3 versus the third with the highest. So they didn't give omega-3. They found the B vitamins don't work if you don't have enough omega-3. But if you have sufficient omega-3, they got 73% less shrinkage. Wow. But nine times less shrinkage of the Alzheimer's hair of the brain. No further memory loss, effectively. 30% of people in the trial, there's a, something called the clinical dementia rating. And 30% had zero rating. In other words, would no longer be diagnosed with dementia. Now let's compare that to the new drugs they're pushing, which I'd like to talk about, these amyloid drugs. Now they've got, in the latest trial, 20% increased rate of brain shrinkage compared to 73% less brain shrinkage. They got less clinical dementia benefit of the B vitamins with omegas. And the public don't know about it. And the, oh, why do the public don't know about this? Why is this? Why? Well, I know why not every newspaper is screaming it from the rooftops or you know, TV station, but it's criminal that there is science. We'll live it exactly. The science is there. And the thing is, you've got, you know, so you've got these two treatments, um, one which, you know, which performs better, where the brain shrinks less, where there's no adverse effects where the cost per year might be, you know, hundred pounds. And you've got another um, which has less benefit where a third or more get brain bleeding or swelling. In the last two trials, there are five deaths. Oh my God, and how was the trial? Well, it's about one in 500 in these trials are dying. And somehow we've crossed the line. It used, you know, normally, when did it become acceptable um, to have a treatment where, you know, a number of people die? You know, I can guarantee you if 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 a high dose vitamin C study caused one death, it would be over. It'd be over. Oh. Right. So and, and this amyloid, because what it is, by the way, is that most drugs um, have block enzymes. So you think of statins. Um, which are a fairly useless drug, um, they block the enzyme that makes cholesterol. Now, we're running out of enzymes to block. So the new era of pharma, um, the way it has to make its money is in two areas. One is vaccines, and the other is in what they call biologics. And these are sort of closer to vaccines. So what we're looking at here is anti-amyloid injections. So they're injections um, of, of antibodies that attack what effectively I think are the scars that occur in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. Um, and it's these, these sort of anti-amyloid, anti-antibody antibody type treatments are risky because you're kind of messing around with the whole body's immune system in the same way that mRNA vaccines are risky. Uh, you know, we don't know what the side effects are and they're not looking very good. So you've got a situation here where probably a third are getting brain bleeding or swelling 
So now with every monthly injection, they're going to have to have a brain scan, which is not a nice thing to give to you know people with pre-dementia. And, and also you've got the radiation from it. Yeah, you've got the cost of, the cost of the drug, this latest one, is $26,000 a year, um, plus all the medical support, plus all the scans. You're probably looking at £40,000 a year for, the, for a treatment, which doesn't even stop anything. It just possibly makes you, makes, you know, reduces the, the rate of cognitive decline a bit. But to be honest, I mean, this is a terribly important thing that we just completely blank out. There isn't a single independent study on statins that show that they work for reducing cardiovascular disease. The only studies that show they work are studies run by and funded by the companies that sell the drug. Yeah, I had Dr. Asim Malhotra on recently talking about that. Here we are in the same situation where, I mean, I, I know these people, you know, I know the guys who design these. They say, we never design a trial. I mean, these are multi-million dollar trials. I mean, the, the spend... The official spend on, on this drug development is 45, well, a couple of years ago, it was 45 um, uh, million. You know, it's a lot. It's probably closer to a billion. They, they need a return quickly. And so somehow uh, our governments, our media, um, have sort of, you know, just blanked out. And I remember David Cameron's sort of article was, you know, it's the, it's the, um, the beginning of the end you know, of Alzheimer's. This is the breakthrough we've been waiting for. But you've got a treatment here where a third of people suffer. And on any ethical, you know, guidelines, we should stop. Because I don't think that amyloid, the evidence is really not there that this amyloid plaque that you get in the brains of people with dementia, I don't think it's causative. You know, it's a, it's a consequence in the same way that having raised cholesterol is not the cause of heart disease, it's a consequence, but it can be capitalized on with a drug that lowers cholesterol or a drug that lowers amyloid. It can be capitalized on. So we're in a situation now where you're absolutely right. Common sense and science is out of the window um, in, the, in the endless pursuit of profit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and unfortunately, that money runs deep through the whole of the medical system and government, uh, the sheer amount of lobbying that goes on, the funding of the media. You know, in the UK at the moment, it's still not legal to have drug ads on TV. But, you know, in America and places like that, uh, you know, it's it's all funded. The, the news is funded, the newspapers. It's it's a massive cycle. Well, it is. And I mean, right now, what's happening is the NHS have partnered with a drug company for a, a new drug injection. You know, I think it's a twice a year injection. Um, and they're running the trial together and nobody can get hold of the data. The drug is extremely expensive. So you've now got instead of the buyer, you know, the NHS or the doctor being able to look independently at the data and say, I, you know, do I want this? Um, it's gone completely fuzzy. You know, government, media, drug companies, you know, the whole lot. And I mean, we had this strange situation which never would have occurred in Norway or Sweden or a Scandinavian country where, you know, the, the, the director of GlaxoSmithKline became the chief medical officer, you know, during the COVID pandemic, uh, surveillance, surveillance, Sir Patrick Valence. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a rolling door, out of pharma, into government. And back into pharma. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 a it's a bit shocking, and I think it's it's sort of coming to a head. 
politically and commercially and financially um, because farmers running run out of blockbuster drugs. So, uh, you know, the statins were like the last sort of big one. And one of the problems that's driving Alzheimer's as well are these um, antacids called proton pump inhibitor. They're the ones that end in azole because what they do is they stop you making stomach acid. Without stomach acid, you can't absorb B12. And metformin, the diabetes drug, also inhibits B12 absorption. So do diuretics for, you know, so you've got this polypharmacy where the average person my age is already on five drugs. And if you're on antacid and a diabetes drug and a blood pressure drug, you know, you're not going to absorb B12. So B12 is a little bit like vitamin D. Uh, it's in meat, fish, eggs, and meat. But a lot of people, I mean, two in five people over 60 have insufficient B12 in their bloodstream to stop their brain shrinking. So it's another situation where supplementation is very important. So what we're learning at you know, the charity, Food for the Brain, and I, would, I want to just say here, everyone should go to foodforthebrain.org straight away. Yep, and we're gonna put that in the show notes. And um, please, I beg you, foodforbrain.org. Have you done the test? I haven't, no, and I want to. <laughs> Just to sort of back up a little bit, because, you know, there's a lot of bad news, you know, and kind of good news, because I realized many years ago, there's only two drivers of disease, and one is ignorance, and the other is addiction, ultimately. So we're dealing with ignorance here, and it's a bit shocking, you know, as the old Chinese proverb, the truth is always disturbing. But um, years ago, back in 2010, when David Smith's results from Oxford came out, I said, now what? And uh, as, you know, second in charge, Oxford Medical School, he said, I hope within five years, it will be standard NHS policy. And I said, well, what would that policy be? And he said, you have to measure cognitive function in everyone over 50, because you can see subtle changes very early. And in those who have a shift in their cognitive function, uh, measure the homocysteine. And if above 10 or 11, give them the B vitamins. And we had that simple strategy costed um, by the health economist. And we're talking about saving 50 billion euros, you know, over a five-year period. So, so you know, you could, these things are really easy to do. You know, they are so easy to do. Now, what happened was our charity got permission. I didn't believe this would happen in five years. You know, um, I, I was more, you know, aware of how corrupt the system is as such. And in fact, one of the big pharma guys came to David Smith and said, if this was patentable, this is a multi-billion dollar drug. So that's the point. You can't patent what occurs in nature, like Beaverton. No. No. You can only make money out of things that you invent. Sorry to interrupt, but I remember listening to a lecture about 10 years ago by Dr. Ben Johnson, who was a full-time doctorate that was hired by Obama to find out why America had so much Alzheimer's. Uh, and he went back to Obama after about a week and he said, if you put a thousand B deficient uh, patients in a room and a thousand Alzheimer's patients in a room and a hundred doctors, the doctors would not be able to tell the difference. And instead of anything being done about it, he was fired. <laughs> yeah, it's I know it's a, it's a terribly sad thing. So we decided, you know, better to light a candle than rage against the darkness. We got permission to digitize the cognitive function test. This is a proper thing. And uh, we validated it and ran studies and so on and made it freely available. And uh, we launched that a few years ago. And every day, almost every day, 100 people will do this test. So we've tested nearly 450,000 people now. Uh, so it's quite a lot. 
And if you do the test, don't go, I don't want to do a test because I don't want to know. You want to know. It's very important. And a lot of people who are worried because their parent had it will find they're absolutely fine. But then what happens is after you've done the test, which is interactive, it's not a questionnaire, you then fill in a questionnaire. It's called your Dementia Risk Index questionnaire. And it will ask you about your diet and your lifestyle and exercise and your, you know, all sorts of things. And this whole process takes 20, 25 minutes, something like that. And it then works out um, what your total risk in the future is. So if you're doing everything wrong, it's 100% risk. And if you're doing everything right, it's 0%. And it's only things that you can change. Then it shows you exactly what is driving your risk and therefore exactly what are the changes, what are the most important changes to make to reduce your risk. And we've now got thousands of people We've just finished building an amazing interactive app thing program called Cognition. So what happens is you, you pick your weakest area because it's there are eight. B vitamins, brain fats, uh, low carbs and GL, antioxidants, healthy gut, active body, active mind, sleep and calm. That's the stress. So they're all in a red, amber, yellow, green. So you then pick one of your weakest areas and every day you get emails, reminders, prompts, things to watch, things to listen to, things to do, just small changes. And at the end of the month, um, you rescore that fact and you've gone from red to green and you move on to the next and then the next and then the next. And every six months you redo the memory test. So we've got people, I mean, I was just talking to one lady and she has actually been doing the cognitive function test since the beginning and her score was getting worse and she was getting down into that almost um, pre-dementia mild cognitive impairment thing. Then we launched this new interactive educational thing called cognition, uh, which she's been doing and her cognitive function has gone up and up and up to the point where she's not only in the green, but she's higher than the average for her age. And this is with no drugs at all? No drugs at all. And I mean, we had one guy and what happened was, it's called Nodge and um, his wife is Dorothy. Finally, much too late, they did the brain scan. They got the whole test, not my test, the, the regular test. He's diagnosed with mixed dementia, which means Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. Um, Nodge is a programmer. He couldn't turn his computer on or off. He was a gardener. He couldn't even conceive of tomorrow. No way he could plant his garden. He couldn't find the loo in his own house at night. Um, and any, they sat down and did the test. And they knew, for example, about omega-3, but didn't realize they don't work without the B vitamins, started taking the B vitamins, started doing a ketogenic diet five days a week, taking something called C8 oil, uh, which I, we might have a little chat about, which is very interesting. Please. Uh, um, got more sleep, so went to bed a little earlier because sleep's important actually joined a Morris dancing group. He's planted his whole garden out. He's back on the computer. Um, his cognitive function improved. His dementia risk index reduced. Now he's very late in the day, you know, so what we want to do is get to people early. So the point is, whatever your age, if you do the test, you can understand exactly where you're at and then do something about it. And here's the amazing thing, because you've heard of the UK Biobank, you know, yeah. which a multi-million pound, you know, event. 
where many years ago, myself included, I think when I was 40, we went along and did tests and had blood taken and all the rest of that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, they've got data on half a million people. We've got data on 250,000 people. We are a tiny charity run by four people, funded only by people who come to us and say, I want to be a friend, which is 50 pounds a year or five pounds a month, um, who then have access to all of this, you know, technology. And I've just learned from my genius programmer at the end of, you know, in a few days, we'll have the research database behind it. Because I've got a team of researchers, we need money, this is a hundred thousand pounds for this bit of research, who can then go in and find out exactly what are those behaviors, you know, what are those combinations of diet and supplement and exercise, et cetera, that are driving cognitive function better or worse. So in other words, this is a living, breathing citizen science campaign involving hundreds of thousands of people all over the world from which we can actually, in an intelligent systems-based way, learn what are those magical combinations of, of the way we live that can reverse prevent, you know, these kind of problems. And I guess- so extraordinary. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is so extraordinary because if you're listening to this podcast in America, where your healthcare is so expensive, you know, especially if you get diagnosed with something like Alzheimer's, fifty pounds a year, which is how many dollars, Patrick? Forty. You know, yeah. I mean, you can you can change your health so radically on your own. You know, with your own lifestyle. And I, I just want to say how possible this is, because I used to believe that, you know, something like memory loss was not reversible. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I was very, very sick, I don't know if you know, Patrick, but I had a spinal fusion. They missed my spine with the anesthetic and all of that shit. And I nearly died. Uh, and I spent two years of my life addicted to opioids and I lost all my memory. I had they called it brain fog, but it wasn't brain fog. I you know, it wasn't just a matter if I can't find my car keys is I didn't know what my car keys were for. Mm. I, you know, it was that bad. Uh, and then I listened to an audio book, uh, Rosemary Newman, I think it was, um, called Rhodiola Revolution. Have you ever read no, that? Heard yeah. of that? Uh, and, and it was, it was absolutely mind blowing because her husband, she was a, a doctor in America. Her husband had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And she tried to get him on a trial for a drug and he did the test, but he was too far gone. And they said, no, he's he's too far gone. He can't come on the test. And so she read this book, Rhodiola Revolution, uh, and she put him on Rhodiola and MCT oil. So I do want to talk about MCT oil. But she, she before she discovered that she was using coconut oil, uh, but that's not enough, uh, Patrick. And we will talk about that. But within a month, she had reversed his Alzheimer's enough to get him on a trial. And then she was kind of looking at the trial and the side effects and going, well, hang on, I've just reversed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it quite substantially without a drug trial. Why don't we keep going on this? So talk, talk to us about MCT and, you know, coconut oil and how you can. Yeah, so this is a sort of another piece of the equation. In a sense, and I'll, I'll just put this out there. I, I realized there are so many risks for, for example, dementia. We know if you've got hearing problems, increases your risk. If you have a hearing aid, it reduces your risk. If you have cataracts, increases your risk. If you have cataract surgery, it reduces your risk. We know about pollution, smoking, omega-3, B vitamins, sugar, et cetera. And no one really seems to have stepped back and said, what do they, you know, what do they got in common? 
And the answer is you can understand all the risks for not just dementia, but mental illness, if you understand that there are three things going on. There was a genius uh, physicist called uh, Fritjof Capra, and uh, he wrote a book uh, in the 70s called The Tao of Physics, a real systems-based thinker. And I happened to be playing tennis with him at the time. And uh, he said to me, Patrick, as you do, what's the difference between an animate and an inanimate you know, object, like a bicycle and you? And he explained the bicycle's got parts. The parts relate, like the chain to the wheel and so on. Um, but a, a living organism has this life, you know, flowing through it. So basically we're talking about the structure of the brain. So the omega-3s and the B vitamins are essential for the structure of the brain. The function, which is the supply of things like sugar and ketones, which we're coming on to, and the utilization. And that's why you need to have good eyes and good ears and good social life and good mental stimulation and so on. And it's those three, structure, function, utilization. So some people are just focused on omega-3, others just on exercise, others just on sugar. But actually, you have to look at it in that way. And that also is why there never will be a drug, because there isn't one thing going on. There isn't one place. It just, it cannot work like that. That's not how, how the disease process works. So coming back to it, what happens, ironically, is when you eat too much sugar and carbs over many years, um, the consequence of it is that you get starvation of glucose, of sugar, to your brain cells. Why? Because the more sugar and carbs you use, the more resistant you become to insulin. Insulin is the hormone that drives sugar into cells. So you become less able to deliver glucose into brain cells, so you become tired. You can't think straight. You've got no mental energy. And um, as a consequence of that, you develop, you know, cognitive impairment. Now, the brain... And this is why it's being called type 3 diabetes. Yeah, it's that sort of thing. And we know that diabetes is a tremendously big predictor. So now you've got brain cells that are sort of struggling to get enough fuel. But brain cells or neurons love things called ketones. They can run on either glucose or ketones. Ketones are not a fat, they're not a sugar. Um, they're made in the liver from fat. And we know that if you give brain cells, neurons, ketones or glucose, they prefer ketones. And actually going back to babies, the reason why babies are born fat and the reason why breast milk is incredibly high in fat is that babies are building apparently a million connections a second or minute, you know, really rapidly because they're largely, their brains are running substantially on ketones. Now, ketones are made from a type of fat, which we call a medium chain triglyceride. The medium means the length of the carbon chain. Which is MCT. Yeah, MCT oil, and it's C6, C8, C10, C12. That's the length of carbons. We have since, and coconut oil has MCT oil in it, but we've actually learned that almost all the ketone production is from C8, which is... 7% of what's in coconut oil. So what we've been doing is actually taking out, purifying just the C8 from coconut oil, uh, which is going to be more powerful than MCT oil and a lot more powerful than coconut oil. And then one of our experts, Professor Stephen Kinane um, from Osherbrook University in um, Canada, he has done trials with people with pre-dementia where he gives them two tablespoons a day of this C8 oil, 
Um, he says it it fills the energy gap. He says it's like the London Underground, where it says mind the gap. These people have a lack of fuel, and the C8 oil, uh, which the body turns into ketones, is filling the gap. And he's proven and shown, and, and he can even show you in which areas of the brain, a 230% increase in energy production in the brain from ketones. It doesn't affect the glucose energy. That stays the same. And consequently, their cognition has got better. So if you've got somebody, for example, in you know later stages of, a, I mean, any stage, but later you know, stages, where perhaps the disease process is so far gone that you know, you're not going to save them. You know, if there are holes in the brain, those holes are not coming back. But there are a certain percentage of half-functional cells struggling to function. And if you give those people CH oil, they come back to life, you know, for a while. It may not be forever. So I don't want to sort of pretend that Alzheimer's is a reversible disease, you know, when it's far gone. But you may get improvement. If you can get in earlier, you know, in the, in the pre-dementia stage, then I think we've got something that you can arrest. And that's why, unlike diabetes or even cancer, where you can potentially reverse diabetes, I don't think you can reverse Alzheimer's when you've got holes in the brain. And that is why prevention is really important. And then what's really cool is if you do do the tests at foodforthebrain.org and you find out what's going on, those factors are driving everything. You know, so one lady did it and she loved it. And she said, my scores got better. My memories got better. Um, she loved the amount of information. She said every bit of information was doable, actionable, not too much, not too little. But she said, I've lost um, 14 pounds in weight. So, so you know, these are the side effects because it affects everything. Funnily enough, I've just interviewed Brooke Steen, actually, who um, um, wrote a book about coming off antidepressants called May Have Side Effects. And, um, you know, there, there is so much information out there about the side effects of traditional Western medicine. And none of this, you know, a side effect here could be losing 14 pounds. How lucky are you? I mean, just, you know, oh, it's fantastic. So, oh, Patrick, I could talk to you forever. This is just such amazing news because I know there are so many people despairing in the world right now who are losing friends and family. You know, my mum had dementia and it is heartbreaking watching somebody you love have dementia. And had I had this information then, like, you know, I was trying, I got her coconut oil, but, you know, I and I got her, I think, towards the end, a bit of MCT oil. Uh, I got her lavender, uh, not, um, not lavender, um, rosemary. So rosemary oil traditionally is very good for memory you know the romans used it so you know but i was i was kind of pissing in the wind here you know i i didn't know where to look i mean it was uh and now our audience today is going to have a resource that they can go to where they can start their process uh, and start rebuilding their journey and i think this is such an exciting moment for mankind that we have people like you in the world who has, have worked Tires, tirelessly for over 40 years to bring information that can completely transform people's life. And you've been doing that on, on a massive scale. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you're doing for mankind. Um, please just tell us once again where you people can find you, what they can find on your webpage, 
Um, and just any closing words that you would like to say to us? Well, I mean, thank you very, very much. And I've, I've focused on Alzheimer's not because uh, I originally had any personal you know, involvement in it, um, but because it, it sort of ticks all the boxes. It's preventable. People don't know it's preventable. Uh, it depends on diet, nutrition, lifestyle. It's individual. You know, and, and that's why on the test, you'll find that what's driving it for one person is not another. So it's kind of like the, the perfect model because, and it's going to bankrupt the health service and it's the most terrible thing. So at the moment I'm watching my father-in-law and, you know, originally he knew his, uh, his great grandchildren's names. Now he doesn't know any of them. Uh, he's now got to the point where he doesn't know his grandchildren. Uh, so, you know, he's just down to his children, of which there are three, my wife being one, one of whom he's pretty much forgotten. Uh, it's the most terrible thing that doesn't have to happen to anyone. And for that reason, please do go to foodforthebrain.org, um, do the test, go to a section that's called For You, and you'll find that there is a manifesto in there called Alzheimer's is Preventable. Please read it so you understand everything we're doing. There's a lot of bite-sized information films. Please share this with everyone you know, certainly over the age of 50. Um, if there's anyone out there who has, I mean, please join uh, our charity, make a donation. Definitely join. I'm joining right now, Patrick. So the minute I get off this Zoom, I'm opening the tab and I'm joining. We are such a lean, we have 10 of the world's leading professors from China, to America, to New Zealand, to England. I mean, really the best, all working for nothing because they know that there never will be a drug to solve this. It has to be solved by what we're talking about, which is prevention and understanding what's really driving things. Uh, and the great news is it's not genes. It's entirely under your control. And we are here to support you. So thank you um, for helping to get the word out there. Oh, Patrick Holford. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. I am absolutely in awe. I've been in awe of you many times as I've watched you speak, but you know, this is just such an exciting thing that you're doing. And I, on behalf of many millions of people around the world, just want to say, Patrick Holford, thank you. Goodbye, lovely people. Bye-bye.